Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Stephen Roberts to the show. Dr. Roberts is an associate professor of psychology at Stanford University. He received his bachelor's degree in applied psychology from New York University and his doctorate from the University of Michigan. Today, we will learn more about his academic and professional journey and discuss what it's actually like to be an associate professor at Stanford University, as well as hear his advice for those interested in the field of psychology. Dr. Roberts, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's going to be fun. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. So tell me kind of high level, what influenced you to pursue a major, first a major in psychology, and then secondly, a career in psychology? Yeah, so uh, step back a, a little bit, because before I got my bachelor's at NYU, I got an associate's degree from the borough of Manhattan Community College, mm -hmm. and uh, which is in the CUNY system in the city, city university of New York. And they had a program at the time. Um, I don't know if it's still around, but it's a program called CC top the community college transfer opportunity program. And basically what it was is if you're a community college student with a GPA of at least 3.5, then they would give you a scholarship to go to NYU to transfer to NYU and major in one of six majors um skipping over so many details i was not going to apply to it and i had a really great a really great mentor who encouraged me to apply and i ended up applying um was fortunately admitted and the majors were like um i think english sociology etc 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 psychology I thought psychology seemed interesting, so I chose psychology, and that's how I ended up there. Isn't it interesting how just one little change in in direction of your life, uh, um, you find your niche, so to speak? And so, thank you for that background. I did see that. I didn't uh, include that in the introduction, but uh, I didn't know that they uh, gave you a scholarship to go to NYU. So you ended up going to NYU for your bachelor's in applied psychology. And yeah, um, tell us a little bit more about why you you said you chose psychology, but tell me why you elected to go that route instead of a different route yeah i think honestly i think i have um even at the community college and beforehand i think i had often been really interested by psychology and i've always loved just human behavior and you know why people do the things they do why do i do the things that i do and actually you know the, the further i go along the further i go down my career the more i realize why I am here that it's always kind of been there. I just wasn't always aware of it. Um, mm -hmm. But um, when I was at NYU and when I you know started there, um, I think the field of psychology just resonated with me more by virtue of my just kind of interest in in humans. And I was also really specifically interested in inequality and racism that some of the other major opportunities that I had, like English, which of course is very relevant, but at the time I just didn't 
psychology just spoke to me a, a bit more directly. So that's how I ended up in that path. And we're going to talk a little bit more about your topics of, of research later on, but it was evident when I looked at your Vita that you were definitely looking at inequality and racism and now in, into groups and how people perceive different groups and, and, and that sort of stuff. So we'll get to that in a second, but kind of following your chronological you know, journey, bachelor's degree, and then you went to uh, receive a master's and your PhD. And I, I think it's just the master's of science in, in passant or in, in passing on your way to receive that PhD. And you went to the University of Michigan. How did you decide after going to NYU? How did you end up going to U of M? Okay, so the, here's the backstory, another <laughs> very fortunate moment. There are actually two reasons, but in my in my senior year at NYU, I participated in this research program at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And it's this program called MURAP, which is kind of like McNair or SROP is another one, Summer Research Opportunity Program, where you go to university for two to three months. You work very closely with a professor and do a research project with them. Um, and I worked with this really great guy who's now still a, re a really good mentor and friend, Enrique Neblet, and he is a Michigan PhD. Oh. So I think that while I was there in North Carolina for two, three months, he was having me sip the, the blue Michigan Kool-Aid. <laughs> um, and to me at the time, the research that I wanted to do and that I was most familiar with was all coming out of Michigan. Um, so I thought that that's kind of why I wanted to go there. And the reason why a lot of the work was coming out of the, that I cared about was coming out of Michigan was because Michigan, um, I think this is still the case within psychology, but across the university as a whole, that Michigan produces more black PhDs than any university in the country, except Howard, which is an HBCU. So Michigan had a great history of, and psychology had a great history of doing research on the psychological experiences of African-Americans, racial identity, experiences with racial discrimination, socialization. So I thought that, you know, if these are the, the, the folks who I'm reading about and the literature that I'm kind of consumed by, that I want to be as close to that place as possible. And I was very, so lucky that I was, that I was able to get there. Well, that's a good summary. I'm going to share my screen real quick. And I believe this is the mirror app that you were talking about at uh, UNC. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the more undergraduate research apprentice program. And they actually still have that. And so you could visit their website and, and look at their mirror app summer. Uh, this is last year's. Uh, um, I just picked it up real quick. Yeah. Talking, so, um, and so, and to see how how things kind of come full circle since I've been at Stanford, I have had two of my own undergrads have ended up in Murap. So, oh, you know, you okay. pay it forward. <laughs> well, that's good to know. And, and, and thank you for sharing that. I wasn't even aware of the Murap yeah. program there. So I'll definitely highlight that for our audience members as well. Were you considering mm -hmm. other universities other than the University of Michigan or? Yeah, there were, I know UNC, North Carolina, DePaul University, I think Santa Cruz, Penn State, there were a few that I was considering. Yeah. And the main reason why you went to University of Michigan, as you said, you wanted to be where it was at. And, and that's kind of a, 
high-level summary of any other reasons. Did you make a visit there? Some people don't even visit the colleges or universities uh, and, and uh, they make a decision and then they get there and find out, oh, this isn't for me. Were you able to visit yeah. before you went? Yeah, but you're bringing a lot of memories back. Um, so when I was at NYU, I was a commuter student. I lived on Staten Island with my grandmother and I would commute in an hour and a half in and then an hour and a half back. I would do that every day. And so I never had the college experience. And NYU is a weird campus where it's kind of, it's built, it's a part of the city. Mm -hmm. So it's not really that. So I participated actually, this was after, I think after Murap, Michigan has this diversity recruitment weekend where they bring in underrepresented students for I think it's like two days. And you come into Michigan and you meet all the faculty and the students and social events at the time it was in order to participate in this weekend you had to be nominated by a michigan phd so there's a little oh. nepotism going <laughs> on i think they changed that um but i remember the bus bringing us into campus and just seeing the m block and the frat houses it was my i was like my first time experiencing that and then meeting all the faculty and Michigan has this huge psychology department and the students, I was just completely bought in immediately. So <laughs> I think that's kind of, I was like, yeah, this is the place I want to be. That's cool. So it almost uh, rung a bell for you. The light came on and yeah, this is it. It feels good. It's where it's at. It's where the, you know, the information is and the topics that I want to study. Uh, you wanted to be in the middle of it, it sounds like. So I, my next question, you kind of already answered it. I, I actually had, what is important to you when selecting a graduate psychology program? You mentioned a couple things already. Anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, so I think one thing I'll add is, um, and you know, all programs are different. Um, so, you know, the, the Michigan program, I was very fortunate that I was fully funded, so I didn't have to pay um, anything for it. And not only was it fully funded, but the funding came from the department rather than coming from a particular particular faculty member. Mm -hmm. So if I had come in through a particular faculty member, I'm essentially beholden to that faculty member. Mm -hmm. um, now I didn't know all this, all the politics about this coming in. Now on the faculty, and I, I understand the, the the situation. But when I came to Michigan, actually, the reason I mentioned this being a benefit of if the if you're funded and if the defunding comes from the department, it gives you more flexibility in how you can navigate the department. So for me, when I started at Michigan, I just not necessarily my what I wanted to happen. But uh, my first semester, I was we had a, a seminar series, developmental seminar, so where we meet all the faculty in developmental site every week as a different faculty. And I, I came in working with one person. Now I'm in the seminar and one person comes in and she, um, Susan Gelman was slash is her name. And she starts talking about her research on essentialism, mm -hmm. um, believing in essences and all this stuff. And at NYU, I minored in philosophy and was really fascinated by essentialism and Plato and the allegory of the cave and really I'll super love that stuff. I never thought about really applying it to psychology. 
and I'd never thought about applying it really to race and racism, but when she was talking about it and then I scheduled a meeting with her, I was like, wow, I wonder, you know, I'm really interested in essentialism and how it applies to race and racism and how do we essentialize racial categories. And we really just hit it off. And I came to her with a project idea and we put some uh, tasks together and experiment and started, just started, I think, a really beautiful relationship and I left my lab didn't understand you know all the politics involved but I'm thankful that I had the freedom to do that and the department was very flexible in allowing that and had it not been for for that flexibility um I would be somewhere completely different right now so a, a program that's funded funding comes to the department and that gives you flexibility in how you can navigate the department that served me very well. As opposed to, and I'm following you, as opposed to having um, it funded through a grant that would run out, as opposed to maybe a different um, uh, professor. And then what happens if that professor is close to retirement or, or decides to leave? Um, yeah, yeah, it gets tricky. Um, or if or if the relationship doesn't work out sure. um, for whatever reason, and again, all departments have different funding structures. So um, yeah, something to be mindful of, though. So you started. I started bringing you down memory lane a little bit. So open up that a little bit more, and and tell me what some of your fondest memories of attending University of Michigan were. My fondest memories. Um, well, the first thing that came to mind was just sitting in my office with my cohort mates. Mm -hmm. um, so just sitting there and, you know, I'm sitting in the room with four other, four brilliant people in the room plus me, and they're all doing work on just really interesting topics that I have never really thought about um, from like attachment and sexual abuse and the effects of poverty on child development. And these are things that I don't work on, but just being around my cohort and learning from them was just really rewarding from an intellectual point of view, but also, you know, we all had our struggles through the five years, you know, it's a long time and a lot happens. Um, so it was really just the people that I met and also my advisors and the undergrads I worked with is really just the, the people, of course, the work, but really the people that I, and my cohort specifically. Okay, well, good. What advice would you offer those seeking a graduate degree in psychology? Um, and just any graduate degree or? Uh, yeah, any, any, I mean, specific to psychology, but you don't have to get into the branches or the different topic areas within psychology, but just any advice that you'd have for somebody, an undergrad, and they're listening to this podcast or watching this and saying, you know, psychology, I've never considered it. Uh, and then they get turned on by it. Any, any advice to those who are interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology? Yeah, I would say um, take, take some time to look at, I won't talk about the different paths, but take some time to look at the different paths, not only the different topic areas and subdisciplines, but also the different types of degrees from a master's to a PhD to a PsyD. I often um, meet students who really want to be counselors or therapists. Um, and I'm not a clinician, 
but you know you don't technically need a phd mm-hmm. for that there are many different paths and many different opportunities so um, i think that people often think that oh they have to get a phd in order to do xyz that's not necessarily the case um, and unless you really enjoy research um, and depending on your topic of interest really enjoy time away from human beings then maybe the research route is not the best route to you so be sure to look up the different paths and branches um because there's there are many different um opportunities you're not the only one to emphasize that other guests and other uh audience members have asked how do i select how do i decide between a phd or a PsyD or just going the master's route and, and getting my licensure uh so you're you bring yeah. up a good point after you graduated with your uh, doctorate, you began your academic career right away, I believe, at Stanford University. So tell us how you found that opportunity. Well, there's, um, to be concrete, there's a web page called Psych, I think it's psychwiki.org, maybe, okay. something like that, if you Google PsychWiki. And basically, they have all the jobs listed for that cycle. Mm-hmm. And not only not only for professors, but also postdocs, postbacs, lab manager positions, which are very important these days um, and useful. Um, so anyway, so I, I was it was my t- time to be on the job market cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there it is. And I would just basically refresh that page every single day. And this was like around September, December, my fifth year, I think um which is when the jobs are coming out and if i ever i saw a job that was relevant um i would put together an application and apply um i saw the stanford the stanford um offer Mm -hmm. and and um given the size of of my belief in myself (laughs) i told myself that i'm going to get that that job and if they were looking for someone who does who did work on race and racism specifically and i thought that i had a really good shot um so that was that was my target i believe uh correct me if i'm wrong but i looked up your history and everything i think you were brought in under what they were calling the faculty development initiative is that right or was it under a different one they had a a couple actually there so um i think yeah so Stanford, we call them their FDI hires. And basically the idea is, um, you know, Stanford was really committed to the, yeah, great, really submit, um, committed to the diversification of their faculty, both in terms of the identities of the professors, but also the content of their scholarship. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very fortunate and thankful to, to, to come in through that, that program. And since I'm sharing the screen, I'll go to your main profile at, at Stanford and it lists your bio and academic appointments and honors and awards. Uh, you don't have one on here that actually just happened, I believe, this year. You got promoted from assistant to associate professor, if I'm not correct, mistaken, right? That is correct. Congratulations. Yeah. I know how much uh, that means to you and, and uh, moving forward like that. And so I wanted to bring that up. So you need to update this profile. Come on, Stephen. Yeah, gotta, I don't know. if I'm. <laughs> I do. I don't know if I'm supposed to do that or if someone else does that, but I'll, I'll look into that. 
Yeah, definitely. So do you remember where you were and when they uh, finally told you, hey, you got it, you got that promotion? Yeah, I was, um, so this past year I was in New York on sabbatical and I was in my little New York apartment in the bedroom. I think I was folding clothes and I got a call from the chair of my department who told me, well, I saw, I saw a missed call from the chair of my department and then I called her back. Oh, okay. and told me that the vote just happened um yeah congratulations that's uh that's exciting after you're you're folding clothes and you see the missed call going oh i don't know if i want to call her back should i finish folding clothes or should i call her back right away <laughs> yeah 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 that was a good it was a yeah it still hasn't fully sunk in um but i'm very thankful well, congratulations. And, and for most of our audience members, you know, I, I sometimes forget to ask my guests, what's a typical day look like being an associate professor at Stanford? Yeah, so it's interesting because so right now, I'm technically I'm on sabbatical. Yeah, and it's the summer. So right. my days are looking quite relaxed these days. When you return, um, when you return, give us a typical day. When I return, so this upcoming quarter, um, hmm. well, I don't want to overthink this because my days always <laughs> look a little different. Um, and, and it's interesting because we live in weird times now where we're kind of rethinking of, you know, do I go back into the office every day? How often right. am, I, am I remote? So at this point, I think I'm going to have kind of a split between half remote, half in person. Um, but um, on average, um, I would say there's a, a decent amount of meetings with PhD students. Um, now that I'm tenured i have taken on a, a bigger administrative role so i'll be the academic director of our center for race and ethnic studies that's going to take up a decent amount of time in curriculum planning um so i'll have a few hours dedicated to this to that i'll then hop in and out of the classroom for about an hour and a half teach um and i'm in and out of different colloquium sessions we have a brown bag where we go and listen to speakers talk um that's it um yeah it's yeah i really i should have i should have planned for this question a little better but every day looks so different but on average i'm in i, I i'm i'm on duty yeah that's now i'll leave it at that all right it's, it's, every day is a new adventure okay all right and I, I i get where you're coming from it's hard to answer that question but i know that people who uh, are wondering hey what does a typical day look like I'm trying to give them a taste of what it is that you do on a day-to-day -day basis. And it may be different, uh, as you said, from day to day. But generally speaking, if I can kind of uh, add my two cents and you can you know, agree, disagree, or, or add some uh, uh, commentary to it. But typically you have some course, course load, you know, that you have to take care of, instruction, teaching. And then you have the meetings, then you have the other administrative, and then you have your research, depending on what type of institution you're working at, research one, two, or three institution, there are certain requirements or, that are expected of you to have pop, you know, pop, publish or perish and, and have so much out there. So that's kind of my two cents on it. Anything else that you'd like to add or 
Yeah, and then there's there's a lot of other stuff that just ends up filling up the day. Mm -hmm. Um, but I so I will say the hard the hard set things in my week are, and this is the way I structure it is Monday for me is meeting days. That's mm -hmm. when I like to meet with everybody in my team and we start the week off strong. So mm -hmm. Monday, I just really meet with people all day. Tuesday and Thursdays are the days that I teach. And then everything outside of that is kind of wiggle room, grading here, mm -hmm. a talk here. But one thing that is consistent across all of my days is I write every day, typically first thing in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, before I, all the other stuff that I have to do that's gonna take away my time, I know that for me, writing is the most important and my favorite part of the job. I do that first thing in the morning. At least that's what I did pre-tenure. We'll see if that continues. <laughs> but that's one thing that stays constant across across um, my days. And I will say this is advice for any, especially if anyone wants a PhD in research, writing is the most important thing. You write every day, even if it's 30 minutes a day, 60 minutes a day, you constantly do that. And for me, the reason I like to start that way in the morning is because I kind of take some time with the ideas that I'm working on. So for the rest of the day, it's still in the back of my mind. So I'm always constantly there. I don't save it all until Friday. So consistent writing and then everything else is you go with the flow. Very good advice. That's, uh, that's good. Consistent uh, forward progress, just even if it's 10, 20, 30 minutes a day. I'm going to share my screen again, and uh, this is another uh, page that I wanted to share with everybody. And this has a, some good information, background information on you. Um, uh, there's your AA uh, when we ta started talking about mm. that at that liberal arts college. And then a little bit more about you and then some of your topics that you uh, uh, look into as well. Um, and this was actually the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. Um, I think when I was doing a lot of research, I found out, you know, so many different um, aspects of, of Stanford that I didn't even touch on all of them uh, that you probably can talk about a little bit more. I found an old Vita. Uh, oh, wow. and then I, oh, wow. then, I, then I found a newer one. So this is more up to oh, date wow. as well. So uh, we have all of that. And then I know that um, you uh, had been working in a lab and you're going through a, a time period of kind of updating that and, and restructuring that as well. Uh, but generally speaking, you know, a lot of, uh, of our guests say that you need to have that research experience or that lab experience and stuff. And so can you talk a little bit more about from your perspective, you know, kind of add your two cents on how important is research or lab uh, experience for those who do want to go into the graduate, uh, you know, career of psychology? Yeah. Um, so one, in the in terms of the PhD path, without research experience, you're not going to get into a program. It's that's just the PhD is about it's a research degree, so you have to show that you have experience with it. Um, I think the research experience is useful also, but broad, more broadly for any of the paths, because what it does is it shows that you're able to engage with the science and the research on whatever issues you're concerned with, mm -hmm. um, that you can evaluate it critically, if not even conduct it and contribute to that literature and move it forward. So you can take it in, digest it, but also move it forward. Um, so yeah, so research experience is key. 
Um, typically, you need three letters of recommendation for a graduate school. Um, the more time you have for with a, a director of a lab, for instance, if you've been in a lab for two years and that person knows you very well, then they can write you a very strong letter of recommendation. It's, all, it's also quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, research is key, very important. I'm assuming it's not necessary for all paths, mm -hmm. um, but definitely the PhD. And if you wanna go the research route, um, research experience is, is key. And I can imagine also if you wanna go the clinical route, even if you're on the research end of a clinical lab, that's also important because again, it shows that you can engage with the literature, you know what's out there, and that even better, you can contribute to it. And a lab experience is also a really great way to get your name on some publications, mm -hmm. um, which is going to really increase your chances of getting into a graduate school. And speaking of research, I'm sharing uh, Google Scholar. I always love going to this website because yeah. nine times out of 10, I can sort by year and I can see what you're currently you know, researching and what you're currently studying. So. Tell us kind of in general, what drew you to your current areas of study? And I can highlight a couple of these, but you know, diversity and, and racism and, and group, as I mentioned earlier, you were, you were starting to look at how people respond to different people in different groups, identifying, and on your website, you said identifying and dismantling the psychological basis of racial inequality and how people think about group boundaries. So tell me a little bit more about what drew you to these areas of study. Yeah, so I think um, the stuff that I'm working on, there are kind of two lines. So one, for instance, if you see that paper with the 27 citations, on emotional and mental health impact. Mm -hmm. um, so up until, I guess, the George Floyd moment, we've been doing, I've been doing a lot of work on racism from the perspective of the, for the lack of a better term, racist person, mm -hmm. what inspires a person to treat other people in that way and how do systems perpetuate that. Um, but, you know, we've been doing some work on how amongst black Americans specifically in the wake of these kind of racist moments, um, that rates of depression and anxiety and fear, they really increase um, to unprecedented levels. So in one line of work, I think we're going to start doing some work on, you know, how do we help people, not only the, why does a person become racist, but also how do people cope with and process racist events, especially children. Um, and the other line of work that we're engaged in is our, our meta science line of work on how can we make the field of psychology um, structured in a way where it allows people of diverse perspectives to get their research into the mainstream, how it compels the field to tackle some of these kinds of um, issues. Um, because we've, and that, and that was born out of experiences with that first line of, of research that I mentioned of in many ways, having a really hard time publishing some of that work if it's not valued by the mainstream or by psychology as a whole. Um, we could have a whole conversation about that. Um, of, well, how can we kind of make sure that future generations of psychologists who want to do work on, you know, underrepresented populations, how do we make sure that we're supporting that very important work um, to the best of our ability?
So we're doing some work on that. I am sharing my screen again. You have a few YouTube videos out there. One of them is what makes a racist. I listened to this and, and, and saw this. You basically lay out many factors that contribute to what makes a racist. And so if you're interested about uh, your research on that, and this is actually reflected down here. I think I saw it down here um, about race. Yeah, psychology of American racism a little bit. And then the other one is how people, there you are, you're just kind of sitting back, relaxing. I like that yeah. kind of background there. How people visualize God predicts who they think is fit for leadership. This one was interesting. It's only a two and a half, you know, a little over two and a half snippet here, but you referenced this uh, in one of your um, publications back in yeah. 2020, and you had 37 people uh, cite this as well. So interesting stuff in, in my eyes as well. Um, tell me what you love most about your job and your career, Stephen. Um, the thing I love, I'm just thinking about how much detail to share here. The thing <laughs> I love most about my job, it's not a perfect job. We don't live in a perfect world. We never will. Um, but the thing I love about my job is one, I love the, the intellectual freedom mm -hmm. of, and there are of course constraints, but overall, you know, no one really tells me what to think about or what to work on and I can identify the issues that I think are important and um, and work on those so so that's very the intellectual freedom to me I think is the most valuable thing on on earth in many ways. Um, I also really love um, the learning piece because it's something I realized in like three or four years my third or fourth year at Stanford of, you know, when students come in, the freshmen, they assume, some of them assume, oh, the professor knows everything and we're here to dump knowledge on them. But actually learning works both ways where they have a lot of information and so much knowledge. And I learn, I think, more from my students than they learn from me. I'm really consider myself just a facilitator. So mm -hmm. I'm I'm very fortunate that every quarter, every day, I get to interact with people who are going to help educate me and my learning kind of never ends. Um, so, so it's, 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 it's deeply rewarding that way as well. I can relate. I was a teacher for a number of years and I get exactly what you're talking about every day. You go in the classroom and somebody brings up something or a different perspective that you haven't even considered. And then you have that open dialogue and that discussion with everybody else in the class and that leads to something else. And so it's always fun to do that. I have a few fun yeah. questions that I usually ask all my guests near the end here. And one of them is, what is your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why? Um, okay, my favorite theory um, or principle, I think, is the fundamental attribution error, which was coined by Lee Ross, who was in my department who passed away last year. And the fundamental attribution error is basically when we attribute someone's behavior to something, there's kind of a bias where we attribute it to them as an individual and we don't attribute it to a situation. So if I'm in a grocery store and someone bumps me, my the error is I'll think, oh, that's a really mean, inconsiderate person versus that person's getting 
medicine because they need to rush to the hospital for a, a struggling relative. Mm -hmm. I don't have access to that information, so I default to the individual. And I think that's such a powerful theory and framework that applies to so many aspects of life, including to the thing that I care deeply about, which is racism, that we often think about individual racists and neglect the situations that lead otherwise really good, well-intentioned people to think or do mean things. So that's a very, I, I love that framework and I'm so thankful that Lee Ross um, gifted that to the world. That's actually a good one. I hadn't thought of that. I had heard of that some time ago, but now that you brought it up, bringing back memories for you going through your, your journey. And as soon as you said it, I went, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, tell oh, us something, yeah, yeah. tell us something unique about yourself. Something unique about myself. Um, I, I guess I, as an individual, am just as unique as everyone else. We only have this one life. Um, time is fleeting. And um, I try to practice a life where I, um, before I go to bed, I, I write in my little gratitude journal three things that I'm grateful for of the day. And I try to, when I lay down and sleep, tell myself if this was my last day on earth, was it a good day? And if it was, then I can sleep. And if I don't wake up again, then that's okay. Thanks for sharing. That's, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of psychology? Yeah. Um, another piece of advice, which is maybe, I guess my mind is on, on Lee today, because this is actually an interesting piece of advice that he gave me. I actually heard him give it to graduate students. And I've heard this from multiple sources before. And I think it's so true. And there's a lot of privilege baked into it because it doesn't always work out. Um, it worked out for me and I know some people who it's worked out for where if you follow the things that you're interested in and just keep doing what you're interested in, eventually, if you're lucky, and I think it works out, um, you'll end up in a place where you'll, where you'll, you'll be exactly where you need to be. Um, you know, so, you know, life, there are many paths and maybe there's a, a billion dollar job here that maybe isn't that rewarding or there are many different opportunities. But if you really do what you love and what brings you what is spiritually rewarding to you, you'll end up exactly where you need to be and it will all make sense. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I like that uh, piece of advice. And that's not only for people interested in the field of psychology, it's a it, life lesson almost. Yeah, uh, that's life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one final fun question, and, and you can think about this for a second. If you had the time and the money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? If I had the time or the money to complete one project, what would I do? It was or, complete one project. Or go on, yeah, or go on one trip. Yep. Oh, um, well, I, I mean, can it be kind of non-academic? Of course it can. Anything. I didn't say academics. Yeah. I would 100% go into space. Wow. As okay. far out as I can <laughs> and come back. Right. <laughs> um, but I would love to, I would love to do that. Yeah. Uh, also, if I can mention, there's one more effect 
or principle that I really value and it's called the overview effect. And the basic idea is that for astronauts, when they go out into space and they see Earth and they have that overview, they have this kind of mind-blowing experience where they just realize how tiny and small we are and how big the universe is. And when they come back to Earth, they really appreciate the trees, the sun, laughter, and just everything becomes so deeply meaningful and rare and fragile. I would like to have that by going into space, but also finding ways to have a kind of overview effect as often as you can in your own life. Um, so I think that's why I would want to go into space to have that maybe overview. I never thought of it that way. We see pictures of the world, you know, from space, but unless you're out there feeling that and recognizing that, it doesn't have as much impact. Um, it's just, it does have as much yeah. impact. So I can imagine just being that far out and feeling it and seeing it. That must be like a really soul shattering, intense experience where, and then you come back down and you think of oh, all these <laughs> political divides and right. anger and, oh, come on, we got to get this together, you know? <laughs> right, exactly right. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to discuss or bring up on this podcast? Um, I, I just want to thank you for taking the time. I'll, I'll also say to anyone listening, if any of this resonates or if anyone wants to ever shoot me an email, I'm always available and, and, and happy to discuss anything, I consider myself to have been very, very fortunate where had it not been for mentors and advisors in my life, I would be in a very different position. So I'm always happy to talk people through this really um, complicated, unnecessarily complicated world and, and discipline that we find ourselves in. Well, I appreciate your time and willingness to share your thoughts and, and, and offering up your, your help even after this podcast airs. So, Stephen, thanks again for sharing your story and advice with us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.